Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technology is the Ask Noah Show. Starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1 450 NOAA. It's 1 855 450 6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome back, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going? It's going pretty good. How has your past few weeks been? Uh, not too bad. I missed uh, coming into the show. I like the regularity. I like the interaction with the audience and all that. But uh, every once in a while, you know, you got to step away for things that uh, just happen to fall on a Tuesday. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, now that you're back and you're here to help me tackle some things, how about we answer some questions? Let's do it. Our first email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hey, guys, I wanted to get your opinion on an idea for a technology training service that I've come up with whilst on a morning walk had the idea of offering a customized technical training for building cloud infrastructure to include Kubernetes. Although I've encountered plenty of online recorded courses or two to three day in-person corporate trainings, I've never seen a business that offers a customized curriculum to the customer. I think this approach would provide a significant value to potential customers as the client would prepare a list of questions for the class prior that they need to learn, and the instructor would then prepare the customized class. This could be a high-level or low-level technical know-how. Additionally, I think the user satisfaction and engagement would be higher than simply following a training template. I don't think this would be hard to sell at the value add. If someone can save days, weeks, or months figuring out how to implement an architecture, it would be a tremendous value to the company. What do you think? Feel free to tell me all the reasons it's not a good idea. Best, Jeremy. So, Let's start there, Steve. I always, I tell everybody that's ever worked for me, your job is to tell me no. I have 10,000 ideas a minute. 9,999 of them are not worth doing. One of them is. So I need to know why I shouldn't do all of those ideas and why we might do the one out of every 10,000. That's good kind of a deal, right? That's what that extra perception or excuse me, perspective gets you is somebody else looking at the same situation and helping you understand something you didn't see. So, what do you think Jeremy is missing here? Hmm. Well, as the person who is often in charge of going in and telling clients, uh, spreading knowledge to clients, I can tell you that they're not going to send you questions ahead of time. I guarantee mm-hmm. you. you might get know. one or two. Yeah. They might not know, but honestly, even if they do know, uh, you might get one or two clients, but I tell you, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it's $1,000 or $10,000 or $100,000 on the line. Even when you say, we need these questions before we start or everybody's twiddling their thumbs and there's eight of you, it doesn't matter. Um, that you'll have a hard time getting the pre-engagement that you're hoping for. Uh, even in training, even in training, that, that will be that way. Um, I think that you'll also struggle to make this in a meaningful way for yourself if you're going to truly customize if you're just talking about slotting in modules like if you make your curriculum such that you have different modules available and the customers can pick which modules they want to go and learn about for example i don't know you want to learn about python but you don't want to do fast api you want to do django or 
anything else. Like if you have that ability to slot things in, sure. Um, I would be curious to see this idea of more fleshed out because maybe I'm missing something. What do you, what do you think, Noah? So when I think about the experience that I have going into companies, here's a model that plays out way more often than it should. Hey, we need to get our heads wrapped around this new piece of technology. Great. Let's send some people to training. The company of the project that we're looking to get our head wrapped around has training for two grand and three days. We can send people and they will get trained. Best case scenario, what I typically see is, oh, that's great. Let's take five or six of the senior people and send them to the training course. They can come back and share with everybody else what they know. Well, that might sound good and look good on paper. But the reality is it never works out, practically speaking. What ends up happening is those five or six people come back mostly competent. But again, understanding that oftentimes if they're going to get training on a thing, it's because they didn't have a tremendous amount of experience going into it. So coming back out of it, they didn't they weren't necessarily prepared to take in all the information like a fire hose. So maybe let's say they've lost. I don't know. I'm going to make up a number, 20% of the stuff. So they they went there, they got presented 100% of it. They come back with 80 of it. Not trained technical instructors with subject matter that they're not overly familiar with, fresh in their mind after a few days of being at a training course, is not going to make an effective instructor for the rest of your team. So then what ends up happening is these guys are getting 80% is the best. Likely it's dropping off to that 50%, 40%, maybe. And oh, by the way, because the people that went to the thing don't have a complete understanding of it, they're largely just parroting what they heard. Oftentimes, there's going to be things that they'll ask, how does that work? I don't really know. Or if they know they're uncomfortable with it, they'll just skip over it entirely. I see that a lot. Probably more often, that's best case scenario, probably more often than that, what I see is, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to learn that. Okay, Um, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have Jim go figure it out on his own, uh, or maybe we'll allocate some time, and then, uh, Jim, you teach the rest of the people. Now you literally have a situation where the blind's leading the blind. So... There are two lessons there. The first is it it is almost always more economical to send people to the proper training. And and these days, more than ever, with things like Linux Academy and VTC.com and and instructors that will literally come to your facility and do training there, I would tell you there's less of a reason to shun proper training. And if if you want people to be competent, go get them the training in the system's that you're using because it's going to be less expensive for you in the long run. All of that, if we kind of park that in our mind, so now let's take a look at Jeremy's model. So Jeremy's model is, can we take and can I custom build training courses? Is there a market for that? You bet there is. There is corporate environments that will bring technical people in to train their employees on a specific thing. And so if that's your goal to say, I'm going to write course material for those people or present it, I think you can make a business model that all day long. Where I share some of Steve's concern is the places that do that, they pay very well, but they want you there in person. They want to fly you out. They want you to write the course material. They want you to to present the course material. And then they want you to answer questions about the course material. And it's not completely uncommon for them to want it to be just for them. So they don't want you necessarily publishing it online or sharing it someplace else. They want you to write it and, and give it and or present it to them. So where I share Steve's concern is I think if you were trying to do that, in a like he said like a modular form where you've got the different things and you just pull the legos out where you need them i think that model works i think if you want to go be the corporate guy that goes to the place and gives a presentation on that specific technology i think that works 
I think if you wanted to create some sort of a subscription model or some sort of a flat fee model, and then you're going to customize the course, I suspect if you run the math out on it, either you're going to get paid nothing for your time or very little for your time, or you'll get paid for your time, but it's going to be such an expensive product that the places that would ordinarily be your customers are just going to hire somebody that will come to them and present. They're unlikely to buy that product off the internet as a, as a package course. If they were going to do that, they would just go buy a packaged course in the general technology that they're looking for. How's that for an answer? I think it's straight to the point. Joshua writes in and says, I'm using WireGuard in a Docker server. My user is part of a Docker group, so I can make Docker containers as a user. Am I actually increasing security by running the containers? as root or is the container just using the defaults? Just wondering about this for a while, thanks. So Steve, what do you think about running Docker containers not as root? So we need to split some hairs here if we're actually going with the security angle because it's very important. Uh, so Joshua writes in and, and is asking about uh, his specific user because he's put his user in the Docker group. That doesn't mean the containers are not running as root. It means that a user can use the Docker daemon to create containers. That's not the same thing as running the daemon as not root. Why is this important? Because if you're talking about protecting the host and there's some vulnerability in the container, if all you've done is add your user to the Docker group, the container is still running on top of a daemon that is running as root. So if somebody does something bad to the container and is able to break out, they break out in a daemon that has root privilege on your box. Now, there's a separate way to do this inside of Docker where you can make the, the Docker daemon itself, so the thing that spins up the containers, be run as a non-root user, and that will pro provide you a level of security. So I guess it depends on what, you, uh, what you're actually trying to achieve. In kind of talking in the pre-show, uh, one of the producers had mentioned, like, brought up the idea that, well, if you do something like passing the Docker socket to the container, uh, you're not going to prevent people from doing something from one container to another container. This is true regardless of how you run the daemon, uh, but where, again, splitting that hair makes a difference is if you're passing in a socket that is created by a non-root user, you're still going to have a limited escalation path. So this, this is a complicated question, and I guess the answer to it really depends on you refining your question a little bit to ask to kind of give me a, a lens as to which way you're thinking about your security. Do you run into it very often where people are concerned running Docker as as root, or is that just kind of... Hey, I mean, at the end of the day, especially in the world of virtualization and compartmentalization, C groups and all the rest of it, it's maybe okay to run certain daemons as root if they're designed to do so. Well, so the issue is not necessarily running a daemon as root as much as it is. Do you have mandatory access control like SE Linux or AppArmor helping mm. you with these things, right? Because the the larger aspect here is i break out of my my container okay what's it get me nothing until you attack the rest of the system but if the daemon is itself is contained by something like se linux it's not going to be allowed to touch other files se linux is going to block that anyway so compromising the daemon of a machine that is running mac mandatory access control 
um, stuff is less impactful. Did, did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So it, it, in, in the right environment, under the right set of circumstances, it might make some sense is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, um, so the other thing here is that Red Hat, as, so I'm speak, I'll speak from, from Red Hat's perspective. Mm-hmm. We don't run the Docker daemon anymore. You can still install that, but we've moved over to Podman and Podman has a, a different security profile because it does not have a daemon. So you can run rootless Podman or you can run rootful Podman, but there's still no daemon involved to compromise in that model. So from Red Hat's perspective, uh, we don't deal a lot with with uh, Docker. We we can if a client does decide to install Docker, but you have to go out of your way by adding the Docker repositories and stuff like that. But uh, and to be clear, at the end of the day, it's not really big a big concern of mine day to day. And that's because you Red Hat has found different what you would argue is a more effective, efficient way to run containers, a standardized way. I would say what I would say is that Docker had the mover and shaker advantage, like they were the first one out the gate. Mm. But whenever you have someone that's first out the gate, that also means like you're thinking of everything for the first time. And so in that lens, there's always going to be something that will come and supplant you unless you're really, really on top of things. And not to say that Docker wasn't, but there was so much interest in that area. It was unlikely they were going to remain uh on the forefront of all of the aspects of containerization. So Podman is kind of the second man up, has the has the advantage of hindsight. Hey, here's what we wished we would have known from the beginning, and now we can incorporate some of those things. Exactly. Yep. I love it. Our third email comes in uh, from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hey, guys, thanks so much for the show. I'm looking for a camera outdoor security camera. I need to be able to look at some distance down a lane, maybe six to 700 feet and at least 400 feet to get vehicles coming towards the camera. Do you have any PTZ or fixed cameras that you like from listening to you talk in the past? I assume access, but anything without vendor lock-in would be great. I'll probably buy this or use this with the Synology surveillance station. Price is not unimportant, but it's for a municipality as opposed to a home project. So he's got another question, which we'll get to in a second, but I guess to start, what were you using for a PTZ camera and do you like it? Uh, I use the real link stuff, uh, specifically the ones that have the built-in, like made with PoE in mind, uh, because they have a, a different level of customer uh, that they designed for. Mm. And I, I do, I really like that. I have not tested it at that level of distance. I'm not exactly sure. I know that they definitely have ones that, that have significant zoom I have not had personal experience with it. What would you do? So one of the things I would draw this person's attention to is the Axis product selector. So if you, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes, but if you, if you Google Axis product selector, it will take you to a, uh, basically a, a thing that says find projects, projects or products and, and pro- products. And you click on that and then it'll just ask you questions. And so, you can, uh, I'm trying to find the exact thing. lens calculator. This is what I was looking for. So click on the lens calculator and it will ask you, Hey, I want to find a camera. And so if you pick a camera and you pick a resolution, then you can, they, 
they effectively divide it into four categories. Detect, in other words, something is there. Might be a beach ball, might be a person, might be a kid, might be a dog, don't know, but there's something there, okay? Detect. The second is observe. Okay, there's a beach ball there and it's rolling, or there's a beach ball there and it's bouncing. I don't know if it's a beach ball, I don't know if it's a person, I don't know if it's a kid. Hopefully it's not a kid because it's bouncing, but I can tell, I can observe, this is what's happening. Recognize, definitely a beach ball, definitely a child, Definitely an adult, definitely a car, and then finally identify. Oh, that's Rob. Oh, that's Susie, right? So oftentimes I will do this with the client sitting in front of me. So if you're doing it for a municipality, you're buying it for your own city, your own municipality, you might, uh, you know, bring it to your board or whoever it is that's paying for it and say, what are your expectations here? With the lens, with the lens tool, what you can do is you can say, "Hey, so I'm I'm looking. So I'm he said he wanted to go 400 feet. So they do distance in meters. So 400 feet divided by three is like uh, okay. So if I did 30 meters, or, or I'm sorry, I can't do math on the air. Um, so like 100 meters, roughly, is that right?" Hundred thirty three. Hundred thirty three meters. So if I do a hundred and thirty wow, that's 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 a ways out there. So you'd have to go through and look and see what you know, what specific uh cameras there, but then you can tell, like, hey, at you know, twenty five pixels per meter, you'll be able to detect at sixty three pixels per meter, you'll be able to observe at hundred and twenty five pixels per meter, you'll be able to recognize, and then at 250 pixels per meter, you'll be able to identify. So if you slide the little slider for the distance all the way up to 250, you can take any camera from Axis's lineup, and it will show you a mock image of what you'll be able to see. Oh, that looks like a pixelated pile of garbledygook. That won't be useful. Or, oh man, I can see the, you know, the whites in her eyes. We know that the red coats are about to attack, and you can make your decision from there. Um, so highly recommend that. I, I, I'll put a link for the product selector and the lens calculator in the show notes. And you can you can take a look at that. I think that will be a really great tool. That's how I would choose what specific camera to use. And then once you find the model that you want, there's no law that says you have to buy it new. So if it's outside of your price range, go on eBay and throw that model in there and see if you can find a, a better deal on one. Second question for Kevin comes in and says, I have another question. I'm looking for the following thermostat room control. I'm looking for something that's Ethernet connected, preferably PoE, operates on BACnet with an MSTP connection, customizable touchscreen, programmable occupancy sensor, and temperature sensor or thermostat. Maybe in your commercial IT automation wanderings, you've come across such a thing. So we'll start here. Steve, if you were to build something like this from scratch, what would that look like? It would be a lot of DIY stuff just because the requirements for Ethernet, like especially power over Ethernet, that's not super common as far as I have seen anyways. Uh, and it's much easier to get a customizable, programmable touchscreen if you're doing it yourself. Like there's the Nexteon people make, make screens that I bought before that you can do this with and stuff. It's a It's a difficult problem because you're talking about how would you control it? If you're asking how I would do it, I would probably put a device on my HVAC and then use something like Home Assistant or actually Home Assistant and then just have my front end thermostat just be a dummy terminal for, for talking to Home Assistant. But uh, yeah, what would you do? So I think there's a couple of options here. I think the first option is you could go... so. Let's, so he asks specifically about commercial. So we'll start at the top. We'll work our way backwards. So 
in very large facilities that have a lot of HVAC and have to communicate with a number of different things where HVAC is just one part of the overall building performance. And so you have to be able to track when things are coming on, track maintenance schedules, tying to different things, that sort of thing. The most common thing I've seen is Johnson Controls. Johnson Controls will operate boiler systems, they'll operate geothermal, they'll operate heat pumps, they'll operate, uh, well, I guess geothermal is kind of a heat pump, but you get the idea. It, it Forced air, whatever it is, they, Johnson Controls has a way to control it. The downsides to Johnson Control, it's extremely proprietary. It's extremely window-centric, and their rates are very expensive. So when you want to tie into something, we, this is absolutely no word of a lie, right hand to God, we ran a, we we're trying to tie into a fire alarm control panel that Johnson Controls have put in. And so we ran the wire from the door access control system to their conduit. I don't remember if we dropped it into their conduit. I'm guessing not. I'm guessing it was just coiled up. But so they had to drop it through a tube that was already there that was like, I don't know, 10 feet in the air. And then plug two wires of closed contacts into uh, into a circuit board. The bill for that, to drop a wire down a tube and plug two wires in, was 500 bucks. So I, it's, it, it will probably meet all of your requirements, but it's a very expensive, very unopen sourcey way to go. So I wouldn't recommend it. In in-between would be something like uh, Honeywell or trying to think of other companies that have similar systems, but basically they have an equipment control module that interfaces to your HVAC system. And then you have little wireless thermostats that talk back to the equipment control module. One thing to consider here is that I don't know that I've ever seen a PoE thermostat in part because typically if you're dealing with something that's already there, it's for conductor thermostat wire. If there's something that isn't there, you're either running for, th for conductor thermostat wire or you're running it off of batteries. But I don't know that I've ever seen anything PoE, so I'm not sure how to deal with that. A quick Google search told me a little bit about BACnet and MSTP, but I'll be honest with you, that's a little outside of my wheelhouse. So if I woke up in your shoes, I would either look at something like the, the Viasat if you wanted to go the home assistant route, and then you can get all sorts of manner of temperature sensors, or you could go with a more out-of-the-box solutions like Honeywell Redlink, which is absolutely appropriate in a commercial environment, absolutely allows you to do individual zones, individual thermostats, individual uh, temperature settings, and allows you to use the touchscreen. So I think it'll check all of your boxes. It, it, it just really comes down to what all you need, what your budget is, and how open source you want to keep it versus how willing you are to just buy a product from a company. Our fourth email, not really an email, but it comes in from Chris in the Geek Lab, and he says, Hi there, I have an Arch Manjaro question. I just need some ideas of what to check next for this non-urgent annoyance. I recently had to rebuild my machine because of some drive corruption that was introduced by faulty RAM. I've been able to reset everything up just the way I had it. One of the things I did was create an additional standard account for gaming. Here's the silly problem. I use XFCE. Manjaro uses an app called Mugshot to replace the picture of the avatar associated with the user account. Whenever I open the app, Nextcloud Desktop also opens. I immediately thought there has to be a problem with the MIME type, so I checked all of the images to see if any of them happened to open Nextcloud Desktop. None of them do. And so, I'm at a loss. Do you have any idea what I may be able to check next? Other apps 
with a built-in chooser function like the XFCE desktop wallpaper app, also open Nextcloud. Steve, have you ever seen anything like this? I know neither neither you nor I use XFCE, but is this anything that's ever come across your radar? Hmm. You know, I've I thought about this before. I've I've definitely seen weird issues where an application launches instead of, but alongside of. I've never really seen that. Normally, the desktop, if it's a mime type issue, normally the desktop picks one. It doesn't open everything that can open that file type. So, I'm not exactly sure where this is coming from. I might do something like launch one of them from the command line and just see if there is output from the command line. Yeah, that's a good troubleshooting step. So we'll check that out. We'll also throw it out there to you, the audience. Can you help, Chris? If so, write in live at asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in from Micah. Micah writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I've got a new ceiling-mounted light in my home office. I was not wanting to get a smart light as home-connected devices are not something I really trust, but I bought one because my wife and I liked it. I went to install it and found the color temperature and brightness is only available via the light app you can connect to one of the smart home systems. I know you guys are big into smart homes, and I know you wouldn't do it if it wasn't safe, but I want to pose this question. Am I being overly paranoid not to get into the smart home due to the security concerns, malfunctions, and the like? Being into tech, I love smart home devices, though I can't bring myself to connect my lights, my toaster to a network, and potentially the web. I could do so if I knew I was safe and would not become unstable after a software update or becomes unsupported after years of no apparent reason. However, if I did start getting into connected devices, I don't think I'd ever get into smart door locks. Would love to hear your thoughts. Second question, how could I go about seeing if the light devices I could buy could be connected to Home Assistant or other some other home smart home system? Thanks. So, Steve, broadly speaking, are you concerned about the security of smart home devices? Mm, not really. I guess it depends on what information they're collecting. But generally speaking, the stuff that I'm looking at is essentially, uh, let, we'll call it a wireless relay. That's essentially like it flicks on and off. It controls the path of electricity. And uh, largely speaking, there isn't really much of a security concern there. You could argue, for example, that there is a privacy concern. People know when I'm turning on and off a thing and therefore can make assumptions about my schedule or those sorts of things. Um, that's easily circumvented by making sure that you're using a local only protocol or you're buying from people that don't require internet connection or you know any number of things. But specifically security, no, but I also don't have any smart locks either. So this is something I really struggle with. Like, and I mean, really struggle with inside internal blood has been shed. I've, I mean, it's just been really bad. So I kind of break it down like this. I started with X10 and it was an absolutely abysmal, miserable experience. And so from that, the lessons I took away were use something that is designed to be used for that thing, not something that was hacked together. The second part of it, and I don't mean do it yourself. That is not what I mean by heck together. But there were some things that just were never designed to be used day in, day out all the time. And so I want them to be good local devices first. And then if I can tack on smart home functionality second, that's fine. But I expect things to last 10 years or more. I don't buy smart TVs because the processing inside of ARM computers effectively doubles every two years. And so if I buy something with a computer in it, it means that that thing becomes out of date. And I just want the display to do something stupid, like display the picture that I feed to it. When it comes to light switches, when it comes to scene selectors, thermostats, any of that stuff, 
I treat those things like appliances, and I want to treat those things like appliances. I want the switch to live in the wall, and I want it to just work like an ordinary light switch. And then, if we can, and this is the important part, without compromising its initial value of just being a good light switch, if we can add something on that reliably works to control it, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, however, comma, I really don't know that I want that on the network. And here's why. If you put it on the network, to me, there is a presumption that you're going to have to continue to update it. You're going to have to continue to provide firmware updates. And so if I put a light switch in and it's I'm treating it like an appliance and, I, and it functions as a light switch and maybe it has a wireless radio in it that communicates down with a controller, I don't ever have, that light switch can be in there 25 years and 25 years from now, it's still going to work just fine. And it doesn't matter if the company goes out of business. It doesn't matter if there's security updates. It doesn't matter. There is no such thing as a zero day for a device that's located inside of my home, unless you also have access to the inside of my home. And if you get physical access, all bets are off anyway. So I like the idea of separating out this is an internet thing versus this is a non-internet thing. Now, you can take that principle, and Steve has taken that principle, and you can use some network knowledge to build the functional equivalent of an island, of a network island, of an appliance that maybe speaks TCP IP, sure, but in the end, it is something entirely disconnected from your regular network, entirely disconnected from your internet, and it functions on its own little island. Steve, can you talk about how exactly you would do that? So the the route that I went was I basically put them all on side of their own VLAN, and any, any smart device goes on the not the not free IOT LAN. And so it's basically it's dedicated to just IOT devices. And then I use some very simple firewall rules that say you can go to home assistant and that's it. Um, and so it's also a good way to test what's happening on your network, uh, with regards to how does it, how does it respond when there's no internet? And that that's always interesting because there's a bunch of stuff that say it's local only control and it might be local control, but it behaves strangely when there's no internet. Um, the biggest example I've found of this for myself is I have N phase system for solar and it absolutely 100% has a local API, but for some reason, the local API stops responding to home assistant when the internet is out. And I've never been able to track down. Why is this? Uh, I don't exactly know what it is. There are, we were kind of uh, chatting in the pre-show about how there are some applications that make assumptions, even though they're local applications and meant to be local applications. If they can't hit the internet, they just assume that, you know, the server that they're serving is down. And you, the only way to find that out is if you pull the plug and see what happens. So you could effectively build yourself a little internet island. You could put the devices on there. I would tell you you're not giving up much security in that stamp from that standpoint. If you built it with completely separate wiring, completely separate switching, I would tell you there's no there's no functional equivalent difference between that and some sort of proprietary and or alternative standard. You're just you're using TCP/IP. Indeed, that's exactly what I did with the cameras that are on the inside of my house. They run on a separate system on separate wiring on separate switching. And the rationale for that is just that there's no way that I can accidentally fat finger a switch port configuration and accidentally drop something onto the internet or accidentally do it, you know, none of that. 
The other way that you could approach this, separate everything out, build it on a separate network, and then put new NICs on your Home Assistant device. So one NIC has an IP address and it talks to all of the devices on the automation network. The other NIC is on your traditional network, has access to the internet, allows you to VPN control the things, get to it from the smartphone app, all of those things. Any objection to that idea, Steve? Not really. Um, there, There is some level of understanding that you have to have though, because if you've got a multi-home system, and they both can, uh, they both have default routes, the system can get confused. So yes. there is some level of understanding you have to have of networking even to do something like that. 100%. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of February 25th, 2024, here's the Linux and open source news. Mozilla Firefox 123 is now available for download. The doll, our door, has released version 8.4. Raw Therapy 5.10 is now available. Sway 1.9 is out. Tiny Core 15 has been released. Elizabeth Figuera, a developer with CodeWeavers, has posted a patch as an RFC to the Linux kernel mailing list regarding a new driver for implementing Windows NT synchronization primitive directly into the Linux kernel. She showed games running better with an average improvement rate ranging from 50 to 150% when using the new driver compared to not using it. In other game news, Valve releases Steam Audio as open source. The Steam Audio SDK, including all of its plugins, are now covered under the Apache 2 license. Canonical has released Ubuntu 2204.4 LTS images, which now include the Linux 6.5 kernel. In hardware news, the Libreboot open source BIOS UFI firmware has added more hardware support. In security news, Cybercriminals are weaponizing an open-source SSH snake tool for network attacks. In open-source AI news, Google has unveiled a new family of open-source AI models called Gemma to take on Meta and others. In the ongoing war between cloud service providers offering their customers AI abilities, AWS will add minstrel open-source AI models to Amazon Bedrock. And lastly, the Biden administration is seeking input from experts on what sort of guardrails are recommended for open source artificial intelligence models. 1-855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on the air with Steve and I. Good morning. Or, sorry, good afternoon. Hey, Noah, uh, appreciate you taking my call. I have a question about um, USB um, Type-C docs. Okay. Now, I've heard you recommend um, Thunderbolt before, uh, but my situation is I have a couple of different laptops work personal, and one supports Thunderbolt, one does not. It's it, but both you know I guess they're both USB C. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, can you? Um, are, can, is there a dock that works both ways? Like a USB-C dock, would it work, you know, with both Thunderbolt and, you know, non-Thunderbolt USB-C? And is there any concern about um, mixing and matching, particularly, for example, if you have like a power, um, if you get power through your USB-C? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any compatibility issues there? Great question. So about... Uh, well, four years ago, because it was right when we entered COVID. Prior to that, I had an incredibly powerful, very nice desktop. And all of a sudden, I found myself working at home. And I got used to, day in and day out, working off of my desktop. And when I went to go back to work post-COVID, 
I realized I don't really want to go back to working out of hotel rooms and working off of a 13-inch laptop after having my nice big dual 27-inch displays in my house. And so I started down the path of developing what I called minimum viable battle station or a docking system that I could fit into effectively a Pelican case and take with me when I went to hotels and client sites and all the rest of it. Why am I telling you this? So I largely made the migration from a desktop to only Thunderbolt or dockable devices. And so I reconfigured my downstairs setup to instead of connecting to my desktop, having a Thunderbolt dock. And that way I could plug my laptop in and it would transform into a desktop. But I had all of the comforts of home. And when I took MVPS out to a client side, I could set it back up and I had a functional equivalent. So your question is, if you want to do that, if you want to standardize docking, how do you do that if you've got one computer that has Thunderbolt and one computer that does not, even if it has Type-C? So Type-C might be one of the most confusing technical things we've ever invented. It USB-C or Type-C is it really what they're referring to is the connector itself. Behind the connector, you can have all manner of things. The... I suppose the best is a Thunderbolt controller. And a Thunderbolt controller, the best way to think about that is it's tied directly to the PCI bus. So it is the functional equivalent of putting in a PCI card into your laptop. And so what you get out of that is when you're plugging into the display port or the USB port or the um, or, or the Thunderbolt port, you're driving into the PCI bus. And so there you have virtually an unlimited bandwidth. It's not unlimited. It's like 40 gigabits, but virtually unlimited into the uh, uh, pathway into the system bus. It would be the modern day equivalent of PCMCIA uh, or the little docking connector on the, on the bottom of the laptops. With the advent of Thunder, the latest rendition of Thunderbolt or the USB 4 spec, it is backwards compatible with USB. So if you bought a Thunderbolt 2 or 3 dock, it may or may not work. But with the Thunderbolt 4 docks, you can buy a Thunderbolt 4 dock, and if you plug it into a device that has a Thunderbolt controller, you get Thunderbolt and it functions how you would think. If instead you plug that dock into a device that has a USB port in it, it doesn't have Thunderbolt, typically what you'll have is either just USB or you'll have sometimes a USB and display port sitting behind the USB-C connector. If you plug a Thunderbolt 4 dock into one of those computers, it will still work. Your displays will come up. Network will work. You asked about power delivery. Power delivery will more often than not work. The only thing you have to be aware of is you are now channeling all of those resources through the system's USB bus. So if you're driving two displays and a couple of mice or a mice and a keyboard and maybe a USB printer and a USB webcam and maybe you got some USB speakers, just remember you're driving all of that through the USB bus on the laptop if it doesn't have Thunderbolt. So there might be a performance issue or you might see a little bit of stutter. But largely, the dock that I have at my home, I have used it with Chromebooks and it works just fine. Okay, so there's so it's, it's not much risk of mixing and matching and causing any, any damage or any problems. No. It sounds like things may not work properly uh kind of depending on you know whether whether it was designed for thunderbolt or not correct but um sounds like the best option or the most sounds like you're saying the most sort of cross compatible option is thunderbolt uh 4 right so 
I mean, so strictly answering your question, the most the most compatible option is going to just be a USB dock, right? So Anchor makes a dock that does not support Thunderbolt. It is purely USB. So if you plug it into a Thunderbolt device, it isn't going to try to negotiate Thunderbolt. It can't negotiate Thunderbolt. It's just going to use that Thunderbolt port as a USB port. It'll connect to the laptop's USB port. So that is by far and away the most sure-fired, works on every device, that kind of thing, right? Where I would encourage you to buy the Thunderbolt 4 dock is when Thunderbolt is available, presuming that your Thunderbolt controller works and is compatible and all those sorts of things, you'll get far better performance. So my suggestion, buy a Thunderbolt 4 dock, which will cost easily 10 times the cost of a USB dock. I think the Anchor USB-C docks are like 35, 40 bucks. I think the USB 4 docks start at like 300 and go up from there. So it's going to cost you significantly more, but I wager to say in the long run, you'll be happier with it. Okay, so the, the I think the Thunderbolt, you're saying that the Thunderbolt, um, the advantage is getting into the, the actual PC bus, but if you are using a non-Thunderbolt dock or product, it still works. It's just going over the USB bus, and, and that's where the performance concerns come into play. Exactly. Do I have that? You have it have exactly right? correct. Steve, am I missing anything? Excellent. Nope, that was pretty concise. Anything else we can help you with? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So one of the things that I I got into a project, and Steve, this is something I've been, I've been kind of excited to talk to you about. So I get approached by a potential client. And he says to me, I have this very unique business in which I sit on the Canadian-U.S. border People who want to order packages that want them delivered in Canada but can't do so because it would be too expensive to purchase them in Canada, purchase them on the U.S. side, then need a U.S. address to have the packages delivered to. So this guy's business is he has a physical address. You pay him eight bucks. He'll have the package delivered to his warehouse, and then you drive across the border from Canada. You pick it up, drive it back across. Bob's your uncle. You have your package. The problem is they do 50,000 packages in a month, and they're using a cloud service that really wasn't designed for it, and so they're running into all sorts of issues. And so they asked us, would you, would you take us on as a client? Would you build us a solution and support it so that, you know, you can help us through this problem? And so the first thing I did is I looked and I'm like, this has to be the most esoteric thing I've ever asked to be involved in because I could literally not find another client and I probably never will if I live to be 100, that's going to ask me to have a custom package tracking software. The vast majority of human beings on planet Earth use UPS, USPS, FedEx, and they have a tracking system built right in. That's good enough for like 99.9% of things. The only exception I can find to that appears to be universities, which have mailrooms, and so they have mailroom software. But they're talking hundreds of thousands of packages, not 50,000 packages. And so it's that is on an entirely different level altogether. So we sit down and we start doing discovery and project exploration to figure out, can we actually do this? And I'm delighted to tell you, I landed, or we, I should say, landed on Django. And Django is, I don't know where this has been all my life. I know that you and I have had, had talked about it before. It went right over my head. But this is incredible. And the, the, the best way that I could describe it to somebody who doesn't know what it is so we have this special snowflake thing that they want us to put on planet Earth. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, we've got to design the back end. We need a place to store data. So we need a database. We have to have a front end because you got buttons. You got to have normal human being buttons to click on so human beings can use it. And then you want the data that's put in and, and processed with those buttons to be stored in said database. And then you want a way to update that entire thing constantly so that 
you don't spend half your life maintaining a piece of software. Django, the best way I can think to describe it, is a framework for building applications. And at first, I was like, well, why do we need a framework? It should be, you know, whatever. I tell you what, my mind is like, my mind is open to a whole different way of doing things because Django makes it incredibly, they, they start from the premise that, well, if you're going to store da data, you're going to do it in a database. If you're going to have buttons, you're going to have some sort of a web server. And so let's start with the basic premise of here's the open source Legos you need, and then you arrange them or build them the way that you want. And a project that we thought was going to take four, five, six weeks ends up taking about two. And I got to tell you, I'm astonished at what you can do with open source tools, Steve. It's really nice when you're traveling down a path that has been well blazed. That That's a good feeling. Yeah. And an entire community, like, again, I am not a software developer. I'm not the guy that you want writing software for you at all. So there's a reason that we hire software engineers to come in and, and, and do this sort of thing is it's just not my, my forte. However, as I'm watching this and as I'm kind of getting my head wrapped around how this works, I'm, I'm functional with Python. I can function with Python. I've played with Flask to get it up and running, but, the you know, the, the, the internet lingo, as it were, is... The batteries just aren't included in that model. And so you're you're it's 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 fitting a round peg in a square hole. Does it function? Yes, it functions. Is it practical? Yes, it's practical. Does it work? Sure, it works. Could you use it in production? 100% you can and people do. But it just it isn't the same as having something that is designed from the ground up to solve a problem and it makes me like if a few weeks ago we were talking about Python and we were talking about how it's one of those languages that it's super easy to get into. You can get a five-year-old into it, but it scales up to when you have a super, uh, you know, very professional, very production-y product that you need to be able to do, Python is right there to do it with you. And now Django seems like it's a whole different ballgame because it opens up the ability to store data, do high availability, all of the things that you'd want to do. And I don't have to do deal with any of the underlying technology. It's just all built there for me, as you correctly or as so eloquently put it. The path has been blazed. Yeah, I mean, that's that's ultimately what's really good about frameworks like Django is that they they lift off the majority use case off of your shoulders where it falls down a little bit is when you really like when you need to customize something it can be a little bit hard because you have to think about am i going to go uh twiddle with the underlying primitives am i going to try and coerce the framework into doing this thing you know frameworks are are really good at handling i'd say the 80 percent majority use case beyond that you know you might struggle a little bit but at the point where you're handling a non-majority use case, you probably know enough about what you're doing to at least be able to research paths that you might move forward with. So I'll have a link in the show notes to onceamaintainer.substack.com. And in it is an interview with a with the, the maintainer for Django. And he kind of digs into the advantages of it and kind of where it was in its early days and, and the benefits that it that it provided. But I guess my plea to you, if you're listening to this, particularly if you're not a developer, but like me, have a desire to see developery things become available and more accessible to people, stuff like Django and Ruby on Rails, but stuff like Django makes it approachable for, 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 for less, I don't know what the word is, but maybe less experienced programmers. 
to be able to go in and get something off the ground. Day one, we had an authentica- authentication uh, agent. You go in, you click login, you type a username and password, and you're able to log in. Like that alone is like, man, we'd have to build all that from scratch. And no, it's just, it's more or less there. Uh, you're just, you're, uh, it's the, the best way I can describe it. It's like an adult erector set. And you just, you pick the pieces that you want and you plug them together and, and put them in. And then you apply your knowledge of Python and, and WebSim. But like, it allows you to get all of that all of that off the ground and I'm just I'm just blown away and and I guess the the point I want to drive home here is I'm really grateful to all of the people that allow me to stand on top of their shoulders because I mean just I can't be any more honest than this this is what just wouldn't be possible without open source you just couldn't do it another way So AT&T had a botched update this week, and it caused a wireless outage that disrupted services for many customers yesterday. Now, Steve, I, I, I thought of you the entire time this was happening, the entire time I'm listening to people. I Steve was at the very front and center of my mind. So long story longer, AT&T service goes out, and as a part of my job at the radio station, I get access to tickets. I'm not much of an event guy. I'm not much of a concert guy, but Toby Mac is coming to Grand Forks. And so, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, that'd be kind of cool. I, I want to go to that. And so I go into the sales manager office and I said, Hey, can I get some tickets? And of course, you know, they, those, all those, all these places, if they have a concert, they come in and they hand up tickets right, left and center. And so she, <laughs> I think she gave me like 26 tickets. Um, and so she's like, here, give, you know, take what you need for your family and give the rest away on the air. Great. Awesome. Got it. So I'm in the process of doing that the next day this whole AT&T thing breaks out and everybody is down and I've got, I've got people telling me I can't get to work. I've got people telling me I'm a salesperson and I can't go do my sales job all because I don't have AT&T. AT&T then offers five bucks, which again, if you're doing the math on, well, if I pay $90 a month for two lines and it's down for one day, well, it comes out to like a buck 40. So I guess in that sense, they're compensating me. But the reality is, it was more than a $5 inconvenience not to have my phone. I, Steve, you'd be proud of me. I didn't even notice. I, none of my phone calls come through an actual cellular device. They all come through IP via jmp.chat and via Linphone uh, or via the Cheogram app. So I, I, I honestly, right hand to God, did not notice that I didn't have service. I, you know, it, I didn't have service as I drove from my house into my office. And when I got to the office, I connected to Wi-Fi and my life went back to normal and and i guess it drove a couple of things home for me so the first thing was that i have largely learned to live without the phone except for the previously mentioned toby mac concert requires ticketmaster to get in ticketmaster will not allow you to print tickets off you have to download their app and i am pleased to report to you that downloading the app on grafino s as long as you have google play services running in the sandbox allows that to work so i had two wins this week steve I weathered the AT&T storm, didn't even notice that it was happening. I've successfully moved myself from a carrier-reliant experience to an IP-reliant experience. And as long as I can get an IP address on some network, I stand ready to to rock and roll. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to go get to see a concert, and I'm not going to have to compromise my privacy to do so. Are you proud of me? I am proud of you. I I did have one small thing that doesn't have to do with your story as much as... So you mentioned that Ticketmaster doesn't allow you to... Um, print off your tickets. Yeah. I've come to find that that's actually not true. 
Oh. Um, so it's beholden to the person that is running the venue and the concert. So I went to, uh, oh. like, like you know, last Tuesday I went to an event here in, in uh, my local city run by Ticketmaster, but uh, there was an option to pick up the tickets at Will Call. Wow. Okay. Well, yep, our right, event venue right must checking suck. through. Our, so our event venue must suck because I don't. The, I didn't see that option. They just. They in fact, it specifically says you. I. I suppose. Well, here. Oh, so as I'm reading through this again, so it does say if you're having trouble with the smartphone app, you can go see somebody at the box office. Maybe they will say, "Oh, it doesn't work" or whatever, and we can print them out. Maybe. Well, I guess what I'm. I mean is, it's not the venue. It's the person at the venue. So like, or the the concert at the venue. We've been to this same venue with exactly your experience before. We talked about how I skirted the rules because my wife is tethered to her phone, so we mm -hmm. just use that, right? But this very same venue with a, a different person at the venue had a will call option. I got to tell you, Steve, I don't like this. I don't like this one iota, not any bit at all. And if it really came down to it, if I couldn't have done it on Grafino S, I would have sacrificed going to the concert. I really would have because this is just this is a hill I'm willing to die on. And there's no there's no getting me off of it. And, and, the, and the further that we get down this electronic passport and ability and credentialed and all those other things, the further we get down that that road, the more nope, uh, I'm out. I just can't mm -hmm. do it. And so I'll I'll use pen and paper. I will use my laptop if I can do it on a privacy respecting OS. Maybe if it's convenient to me, maybe I will capitulate. But then past that, I'm just I'm out on phones. I'm just I'm not doing it. It's just not going to be my thing. I'm proud of you. I figured you would be. So that was my open source win for the week. If you have an open source win, I'd love to hear from you live at asknoahshow.com. The show only works if you write in and ask your questions or give us a call live on the air at 855-450. No, you can also join us in the mumble room mumble.minddrip1.com the music in our ears hey it means we're out of time but the entire show is recorded and available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com as well as all the other shows we've done as well as the show notes they give you access to a bunch of things that we didn't have time to get to in the show you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com we're back next Tuesday at 6pm central asknoahshow.com asknoahshow.com